Welcome to Spirits of Whiskey. We explore the wide world of whiskey through the many colorful personalities who make it, promote it, write about it, and more. With each podcast, Carrie Moynihan, a certified bourbon steward and bartender, and yours truly, Philip Dobar, director of the Cocktail Collection, interview whiskey's most important names. From high-profile makers, blenders, and ambassadors, to out-of-the-way innovators and remote pioneers. Join us as we discover the people and elements that give the water of life its spirit. It is October 2nd, 2020, and we are back after our end-of-summer hiatus. This is Episode 17, and today we speak with Justin and Jennifer Stiefel about Heritage Distilling Company and turning over a 200-year-old law. But first, stay tuned for this week's Whiskey Chronicles. Over the past few years, many social injustices have surfaced, and the responses to them, including the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter, have made headline news. And it seems more and more people are standing up for what is right in the hopes that someday we as a people will not have to withstand racist scrutiny or sexual harassment from anyone. These, however, are not the only injustices that stains America's historical record. There is still a legion of racially motivated laws on the books today. One such law, thankfully, was repealed recently with the help of a group of people who posed the question, why the heck? In 1834, early in his second administration, President Andrew Jackson signed into law a bill prohibiting the distillation of, quote, ardent spirits on Native American tribal lands, then referred to collectively as Indian country. Its stated intent was to preserve peace on the frontiers, but it was largely motivated by an ugly caricature, that of the drunken Indian, a persistent stereotype which reflected a widely held belief that Native Americans were unable to deal responsibly with alcohol. The law was but one of many in a series aimed at solving the Indian problem. In 2016, the Confederated Tribes of the Chehalis Reservation opened a restaurant on their lands in Washington State, with plans of opening a brewery and a distillery as a way of generating additional revenue. Just prior to breaking ground on the project, however, the Bureau of Indian Affairs alerted them that by doing so, they'd be violating federal law and the project could result in fines and forfeiture of their assets. The tribe had already enlisted the technical support of attorney and distiller Justin Stiefel, co-founder of Heritage Distilling Company. So when discovery of the law threatened the project, Justin, who with his wife Jennifer, had worked as a congressional staffer for some years and thus knows a thing or two about manipulating the levers of power in Washington, D.C., sprang into action. Together, the Chehalis tribe and Heritage Distilling, with the support of their elected House member, Jamie Herrera Butler, Republican of Washington, lobbied Congress to set right a wrong. By 2018, the law had been erased from the books. Quote, It is right and fair that Indian tribes should be able to pursue the same economic opportunities as non-tribal citizens, says Representative Herrera Butler. Therefore, we had to repeal this antiquated law. I'm pleased tribes across the country will now be able to expand into the booming distillery business that brings new jobs and skills training. For links and more information on the 1834 Jackson Air Law, visit our website and see today's show notes. Up next, we speak with Justin and Jennifer Stiefel, who tell us how they went from working on Capitol Hill to owning their own distillery and then back to Capitol Hill to repeal a Jackson Air Law. The Center for Culinary Culture, home to the Cocktail Collection and L.A. Food and Drink Museum, has a YouTube channel that offers a diverse and growing slate of food and drink series, featuring a mix of how-to, lively talk, and culinary entertainment. Already streaming are culinary quickies, Le Cocktail Du Jour, V is for Vino, and this podcast, Spirits of Whiskey, 
Upcoming shows include Cocktails, The Grand Tour, a new series starring Jonathan Pogash, a.k.a. The Cocktail Guru, the award-winning Music and Booze with Mo, featuring Mo Herms and his series of musically-spirited cocktailians, and an all-new wine podcast hosted by Silver Pin Certified Sommelier Stacy Hunt. We're streaming culinary culture, so please visit YouTube, search for the Center for Culinary Culture, and subscribe now. The Center for Culinary Culture, telling the story of food and drink one taste at a time. Today on Spirits of Whiskey, we are fortunate to have with us a husband and wife team. That's a combination that's not unknown in distilling, but this particular combination comes with a grounding and background professionally and geographically so diverse. This is indeed unusual. Joining us today are Jennifer and Justin Stiefel. Jennifer is president and co-founder and Justin is CEO, co-founder, and master distiller at Heritage Distilling in Gig Harbor, Washington. Welcome to Spirits of Whiskey. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. So as we always start each interview, we always start with asking about your whiskey journey. So it seems like you guys had a very interesting way about getting to where you are. (laughs) So I guess we'll kind of start off with whose dream was it? And did you both as children think one day I'm going to have a distillery or was this one of you and the other one's like, okay, sure. And then also how did starting the distillery lead you to, and I'm going to probably say this wrong. So you guys can tell me that how to pronounce that tribe's name because I'm going to say it wrong. Shahalis. Shahalis. Okay. Yes. Uh, so how did getting to where you are get you in cahoots, so to speak, with Shahalis tribe and overturning the law, basically? Well, yeah. So for me, it actually did start when I was a kid. I was six years old when I was first kind of exposed to the idea. I was watching reruns of MASH on TV with my dad. And if you remember that show in the tent, they had a still set up. Indeed, they did. Yes. And they were making product. (laughs) And I remember at the age of six, even asking my dad, what is that? What's going on there? Why is that thing coiled up in a circle? And what are they putting in the glass? And why are they adding olives or onions or whatever. So my dad kind of walked me through what it was about. And I just was fascinated by it. That's at the age of six. And so in seventh grade uh, chemistry, I was able to build a still for my school project. And uh, Mr. Smith liked it very much. I got an A and I just kind of (laughs) fell in love with the idea of processes. So Mm -hmm. yeah. And, Do you, you know, still I, have that still? And was it functional? Yeah, it was functional. That's why I got an A. Uh, <laughs> I don't have the still. It was promptly taken to Mr. Smith's house from the school because, you know, oh. building and possessing it. So this was able to distill enough to be drinkable. This wasn't just a, a few drops. Yeah, small batches. Okay. All right. Ultra small batches, bench top, bench top. But you end up with, you know, in the course of an hour or so, maybe over the course of two or three days, from class to class, you might end up with like, you know, half a cup. And once you can see it's functioning, why then really inspired teacher would say, I need to take this home and do more testing. And then I never saw it here. So (laughs) (laughs) it's like the Grinch taking the Christmas tree back to his workshop to fix a bulb. That's right. Yes. Okay. Let me, let me, me, I'm going to take this for your own protection and make sure it still works. So (laughs) 
had this love of chemistry. So in college, I studied chemical engineering. And, you know, that is the kind of basic underlying curriculum for distillation because the chemi scenarios, we can design a plant to take crude oil and break it down into components and turn it into kerosene, gasoline, and so on. Mm-hmm. You can take trees, you know, lots of chemis are in the paper and rayon process. You take trees in, run it through, design the, everything and the processes and the management of the processes, and you end up on the back end with paper and toilet paper and cardboard and all those other things. Or you can do things like maybe, I don't know, turn corn into whiskey. Which is the most fun. Yeah. So having that understanding of the various parts of the engineering, the fundamentals, the thermodynamics, um, the phase change, which is really at the heart of distillation. And after college, then went to Washington, D.C. and I went to law school and studied law. And so now for our company, I can really think through design and implementation and efficiency protocols while also examining the regulatory environment we live under. So that's how I came to be here. Okay. Jen? So did you want to practice law in addition to that, or you just kind of wanted to do this so that you can know what was legal for you to do in your own business? Well, I never really thought we'd open a distillery. I never, the thought never crossed my mind because prior to moving back here to Washington state where Jennifer and I were both were from originally, legislature didn't allow distilleries to become licensed until 2009. So having grown up in the West Coast, Pacific Northwest, we're never really exposed to the core of the distillery business like you would be the wineries and the breweries. Mm-hmm. Right. If you want to go see that in the U.S., you have to go to Kentucky or Tennessee primarily. Justin, was there an active prohibition on them or did the state just have no mechanism for licensing them, which was the case in many states? It was a combination of both. Washington is one of, they were one of the more aggressive in terms of control Mm. after prohibition. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It wasn't until 1954 that you could order a cocktail in a bar or restaurant in Washington. And that was only after a citizen-led initiative on the ballot to allow cocktails to be made and sold in Washington. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's taken a long time. It required some pretty forward-thinking people in the industry here to go to the legislature and say, look, we have world-class breweries. We've got world-class wineries. The next value add and the fact that Washington grows everything you need to make any kind of spirit with the exception of rum and tequila. Mm-hmm. We are really one of the parts of the breadbasket of the U.S. And so if we want to see value add in Washington, the legislature needs to finally do this and create this license. And so they did in 2009. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Jennifer, where do you intersect? Well, Justin and I have been together for 28 years and have three children, and we moved back to Washington State after being in Washington, D.C. for 13 years. And on my hip is a two-year-old and a five- and seven-year-old running around, and he comes home one day and says, I want to open a distillery. And I looked at him and I said, you know, I don't like beer that much. And so (laughs) (laughs) there was a disconnect there. Okay. We immediately got in the car and hauled our kids to, I think, a local store that sold liquor. And I had a steep education in what vodka, gin, and whiskey are. (laughs) And from there, I said, well, if this is going to keep your mind busy and inspire you every single day, let's do it. So we started writing our business plan and a year later opened the doors to our first distillery in Gig Harbor. That's pretty fun. Okay. All right. Now you say your first distillery. 
there are more. Yeah, well, we have, we've since opened a handful of others, but you know, Jennifer kind of sells herself short. When we were going through this process of thinking through the distillery at Heritage, the customer interface, she'd spent quite a few number of years uh, doing customer service and high-end sales at Nordstrom. And she was a teacher, turned her master's in education, and so was able to put curriculums together. And the one thing I did know she liked very much was wine regularly visiting some of the better known wineries in Washington and and then around Napa Valley. Mm -hmm. And the thing we noticed was that they have tremendous customer experiences indeed in and around, right? Mm -hmm. As opposed to craft breweries, which often are about the variety on tap, constant changing of what's on tap, Mm -hmm. but they lack that customer interface and getting the customer really involved in the consumer journey. So she sat down and said, if we're going to do this, we need to make sure that we really engage the customer as well as the wineries do, while also figuring out how to do the variety and the creativity that the craft breweries do. And so she helped put those two together. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very cool. So yeah, the website speaks of tasting room after tasting room after tasting room, and not just in Washington, but also in Eugene, Oregon, I believe. Right. Okay. Yep. In Oregon, yep. That's right. All right. And also, Heritage Distilling has its name on a, there's a there's quite the range of whiskeys and quite the range of vodkas. I mean, you're turning out a lot of product. We are. You know, the beauty of, of distilleries is that you can almost never go wrong. You know, if you have a bad batch of beer at a brewery, you got to dump it. Mm-hmm. If you have wine that doesn't meet the winemaker's standards, you might be able to turn it into brandy or you might dump it or you might discard it. In the distillery world, if we have with a batch we don't like or we're not happy that the cuts were made, we can just redistill it. Sure. Mm-hmm. If we end up with something out of the barrel that we think is done aging but not quite to our taste profile, you can do some blending. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, if you go to Scotland, the most important position in the Scotch distilleries is not the distiller, it's the master blender. Sure. We can treat whiskeys and gins and vodkas as though they're like a painter's palate and begin to add all sorts of varieties and flavors to them. Yeah, a lot of people who are devotees of spirits, particularly whiskey, I think the role of the blender is underappreciated because that blender is responsible for continuity. Right. Year to year to year, working with whiskeys that can vary rather widely. That's right. And in Washington, we happen to have lots of wineries. We have a thousand wineries now. So we're the second largest kind of wine focused state in the country. Mm-hmm. And we get quite a bit of wine from the wineries okay. to distill. We distill it into vodka and that becomes the basis for our, our line of flavored vodkas. Ah, wow. Okay. Are you doing any brandies? Do you have plans to do any brandy? We have some brandy in the barrel. Okay. Yep. It's just fascinating. That is very cool. Now, the bios speak of time in Alaska. Was that just a detour? Was that in your earlier days? Yeah, so my family settled in Washington State in the Queets Valley area. And my dad also was raised in Southeast Alaska before statehood. They were the Winter Watch family on a small island in Southeast called Chatham. Mm -hmm. And from there, my grandparents raised their family half the year in Washington State, the other half in Alaska. And at a couple weeks old, I was moved up to Alaska after I was born here in Washington State and lived there until I graduated from high school where Justin and I met in high school, high school sweethearts, (laughs) and uh, lived in Dillingham, a small fishing village outside of Western Alaska. And I was raised in the fishing industry. So I learned how to drive a forklift at age 12 and uh, was running manufacturing lines very early on. So when Justin came to me and said, I want to open a distillery, I'm like, oh, that's 
not a problem. It smells great, tastes good. It's not cold. It doesn't smell like fish. Right. Ice, and I'm in. <laughs> you were already looking ahead to the production line and, and bottling and delivering the product. Oh, yeah. The production is what we both love, that part of it. It's the science of it, which is also the art. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, even to our barrel manufacturer, Cooperage that we use in Spain, that's a family Cooperage. And what you put in the barrel and then what you get out two years later or beyond, it's art. And it is really cool to kind of be a part of that process. Mm-hmm. Oh, and some of it's very good art. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so how many distilling locations do you guys have now? We have our flagship facility in Gig Harbor, Washington. We have one in Eugene, Oregon. We have another small one down on the waterfront in Gig Harbor in the core kind of old town. We have one in Ballard up in Seattle, and then we have one in Roslyn. We're getting ready to open another one in Tumwater right near the old Olympia Brewery site. Wow. Wow. That will take you to six functioning distilleries? Is that? Yeah. They all function at some level or another. Okay. Our partner, the Chehalis Tribe, just opened a large facility in partnership with us, carrying our brand and our recipes and products. Okay. All right. Well, tell us about that. Yeah. This is how you got on our radar. Oh. There was an article in the American Distilling Institute newsletter about the Chehalis Tribe being the first Native American-run distillery and the saga behind getting street legal. And I sent the article to Carrie and said, hey, what do you think? Uh, (laughs) And I said, this is a fascinating story. Let's get him on. (laughs) So here we are. So how did you guys meet up with the tribe and how did the whole partnership start? And at what point did you find that you couldn't open until you overturned the law? Yeah. So I got a phone call from an acquaintance that I knew who also knew the tribe about five years ago. And he called me and said, hey, I'm working with the tribe on a couple of projects on the economic development side, and they want to open a brewery and asked if you can help. And I said, well, you know, we don't make beer, but I'm happy to come talk to them and kind of walk them through some basics and then, you know, kind of help them think through on their planning. And myself, having grown up in Washington, especially in eastern Washington, part of the curriculum that we had in Washington State in the schools was learning about uh, the history of Indians in the Northwest, the Lewis and Clark Trail coming through, the westward expansion, all those things. And so I had had an affinity for the tribes prior to this. And my time in Alaska was spent working for the two senators, U.S. senators from Alaska. And so in that capacity, I was able to interact with quite a few of the Alaska Native groups and work on projects with them and for them. So I've just always had this interest in how do you help advance economic development opportunities and investment and and engage with folks in different levels. So I got the call and went and met with the Shahalas tribe, and, and this is now five years ago. And they said, hey, we want to open a brewery and so on and so forth. And I said, look, that's great, but I think the beer market is going to get very competitive in the next couple of years, and you're likely to see a plateauing of the interest as more and more people enter the market. Right. Distilling is on the upswing. It's in its infancy still, relatively speaking. And I think there's still a good 20 to 25 year lead time ahead. So if I were you, I would get involved on the distilling side. And if you still want to do beer, let's design the facility with a main spine that has all the grain handling and steam and chilling and electricity so you can produce both very efficiently and cut that overhead cost in half across both, mm-hmm. both product lines. And they said, great. So we spent the next three years thinking through designing and going through all sorts of elements. And we were getting ready to break ground. This is February of 2018. And this was being built on trust land. So it's land held in trust 
by the federal government for the benefit of the Chehalis tribe. This is how almost all reservations are set up in the U.S. And the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which oversees all the land and is the one that holds the land in trust, sent a letter saying, hey, you can't build a distillery because we found a statute from 1834 from Andrew Jackson's era that said anybody who sets up a distillery on Indian land uh, is subject to a fine. And basically at that time, the Department of the Army can go in and break up the stills. So, yeah, we should mention here Andrew Jackson was no friend of the Native American. No. Responsible for the Trail of Tears. Yes. That's right. Yeah. One of his nicknames was Old Indian Killer back then. And yeah, he's the one who really pushed what was called the Indian removal policies through. One of the statutes that he signed into law, Congress enacted, was this prohibition on building distillers in Indian country. Now, at the time, it was for a different reason. What was happening back then was. Uh, settlers were being encouraged to move west because the U.S. wanted to make sure that Great Britain, France, and Russia didn't occupy the west after the Louisiana Purchase. Mm -hmm. And how do you make sure that you don't have foreigners occupying your newly acquired land? You move your settlers out there as fast as possible to occupy the land first. And so that meant they initiated this process of trying to remove the Indians farther and farther west. And what would happen then, the interaction between the settlers and the Indians at the time was very negative, as you can imagine. And some of the settlers and the unscrupulous, what they called land speculators, they would go and they would get the Indians inebriated and get them to sign papers, even though they didn't understand them and, and end up taking more and more of the land. Mm -hmm. And then some of the more aggressive tribes didn't like this. And so they started to fight back. And all of a sudden now you had settlers and wagon trains moving west being attacked by some of these tribes mm -hmm. that were trying to protect their rights. So it forced Congress and Jackson to create what they called the Indian Non-Intercourse Acts. And what that said was, you have to have a special permit and license to deal with Indians. Even at one point to say, you cannot even talk to an Indian unless you have permission from the Indian agent or the Secretary of the Army. Okay, So it was a prohibition on fraternization. Yes. Of any sort. Correct. And it was a different time, and they did it for different reasons. And one of the statutes was no person can set up a distiller in Indian country. They didn't want the settlers setting these up and then getting the uh, Indians intoxicated to cause problems. Okay. So we get this letter from the BIA, and the tribe says, well, this is a problem because we don't want to spend all this money and then have the Indian agent of the Secretary of the Army come in and break up our beautiful copper stills that we just had made in Italy. Yeah. And we also want to be able to get bank financing when we're done to do some takeout financing. This will be a cloud on title. So what are we going to do? So we had a choice to make. We studied the law, studied the letter, looked at the history. We determined that nowhere since 1834 had that statute ever been enforced. We called the Department of Justice and said, hey, this thing is landing on our desk. We want to build this distillery. Are you going to send in agents to break up the stills? And the DOJ said, no, <laughs> we're not going to do that. The law itself really had been mooted by previous acts and federal cases, yet it had not been taken off the books. And one of the things the federal agencies are not very good at is they're not very good at getting creative or thinking outside of, the box of what's written on paper. Right? <laughs> no, they aren't. Really? Yes. Right. <laughs> I'm sure you could share some tales from the TTB. TTB actually is one of the better agencies to work with. They're pretty good, and, and I think they're very industry-focused in a positive way. That's good to hear. Yeah. We've heard horror stories. Yes. Well, you know, there are times where you want to do certain things, and they have rules they've got to follow, but they're very polite and very professional about it. Uh -huh. And oftentimes, they'll try to figure out a way to be, to be somewhat creative with you. So, uh -huh. Very good. We had three choices. One- not do the project. Two, four choices really. 
go forward and overturn and ignore the BIA, but it meant that the TTB probably would not give the license, the permit to the tribe to open. Mm -hmm. That's a problem. Number three is sue the federal government. That takes a long time. Or number four is go to Congress and get the statute changed. So Mm -hmm. in February of 18, the decision was made. Let's go to Congress and see if we can get the statute changed. And that's the start of that part of the saga, what I call part two. When you and Jennifer worked in D.C., you both did serious time as congressional office staffers, did you not? Yeah. When you say D.C. in serious time, you usually implicate jail. We both worked as public servants in the United States. There you go. How's that? There you go. So you worked in those capacities long enough to learn how things run in D.C. Correct. Was that experience helpful in getting the law repealed? It was helpful. In fact, I remember sitting with the chairman of the tribe in one of the uh, congresswoman's offices we were going through. And the tribe takes the lead, and they had a, uh, the tribal lobbyist there, and everybody's answering questions. And I chimed in, and I, I mentioned something about how we view these three steps in the process. And I remember vividly, the congresswoman looked at me, and she said, you, you talk like you've been here before. What is going on with you? You're <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I used to work Because here I was, you know, just I just run this little distillery out of Washington. And she's like, no, 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 no. Nobody talks like that unless you've been here. What is going on? Like, well, my office is around the corner. (laughs) (laughs) So the response we got was literally 100% unanimously positive because it's pretty easy. It's very stark terms put this in. We've got one of the fastest growing industries in the U.S. in craft distilling. Mm -hmm. And here you have a statute that is, whether or not it's still enforceable is dubious. And what it says on its face is that only Indians, by way of federal law, cannot engage in this activity. And nobody can argue with that. Why is it that Indians and tribes that have economic development power on their own, policy that they call self-determination, they can do literally anything. They can get engaged in marijuana, which is still illegal at the federal level. Mm -hmm. It's still a scheduled substance, right? Mm -hmm. Indeed. They can do marijuana because DOJ has decided not to enforce anything. And yet you've got this old statute that's 180 years old that's never been enforced and it's not enforceable is going to hold people back. So it was a resoundingly positive response on both sides of the aisle, not a single person raised concern. That's wonderful. Great. So how long did it take to get from February of 2018 when you just started on this to get them to overturn it? and It was signed into law in December of that year. So with less than a year, we had it done and passed. That's lightning speed. It is, yeah. It was one of the few unanimous bills that made it out of Congress that year. And of course, it had been on a very short order. It didn't cost the government any money. There's no fiscal impact. There's no tax implication. The mm-hmm. tribes still have to pay the same, same federal excise taxes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's a great story to tell because you've got a tribe Literally, all the work had been done. Equipment was ordered. It was paid for. They wanted the break ground. uh, They were getting ready to write $25 million check to build this thing and create 100 plus jobs. Right. And this one little thing got in the way. Mm -hmm. So we had to get that fixed. Mm -hmm. A codicil. Amir Cottesill. Yeah. The full repeal. I appreciate the reference, though. Of course. So have any other tribes reached out to you and said, hey, we decided we want to do this too. Can you help us out? Uh, yes, absolutely. And we exchanged a term sheet with another tribe here in Washington to start the next project. Oh, wow. We've gotten kind of verbal approval from three other tribes in Washington to move forward in discussions and negotiations. We've got tribes from Michigan, Oklahoma, California, and others that are reaching out to us asking for meetings, presentations, and, and so on. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. Well, you're feeling you're meeting a need no one know no one knew existed. Well, you know, um, 
when the tribes first began to enter the gaming arena 20 plus years ago, they had never run casinos before. Mm-hmm. And so most of them did not just go build a casino and run it. They partnered sure. with some of the mm-hmm. bigger companies like Bally's or Harrah's mm-hmm. or MGM or Caesars to come in and help design, build, open, manage, and, and run operations. Right. And that's kind of how we view ourselves on a much smaller scale. Yeah. That's really cool. That's just fascinating. That's a great story. Well, not many people can say that they went and, and repealed the statute from Andrew Jackson. And that's one of those things that does give us credibility in talking to the tribes because, as you noted earlier, he is among the most hated oh, yes. all in the history of right. the U.S. in terms of dealing with the Indians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And anytime that they can do something to unwind something from his era, yeah. they were happy to try to do that. Yeah, it's a very ugly history. It is. And so we have a tremendous amount of credibility that not a single other person in the country can claim. And we also have the trust and the partnership of the Sahelis tribe. And that's one of the things in, in dealing with tribes is you know, very few of them might want to be the first to do something. But when they see that others have kind of forged a pathway forward, then they're more willing to take a look and engage. And so, you know, hopefully we can maintain that status as a good trusted partner. Right. So who were the main people in the Chehalis tribe that you worked with to get this all done? We worked with primarily a couple of folks, one named Chris Richardson. He was the first person I met, and he's one of the managing directors on the tribal enterprise side. That's, that's one of the other things in dealing with tribes is you've got different entities. It's like dealing with the federal government because they are their own nation. It is. So you have the tribe itself, which is the government arm. You have, in many cases, they might have the casino operations under a separate economic arm. They have yet maybe another economic development arm where they're trying to do investments and maybe they're running hotels or golf courses or marijuana or convenience stores or any of those things. They also have a health department. They've got a judicial department and so on. So mm-hmm. uh, first with Chris Richardson, they then hired a CEO. His name is David Burnett and he's just like Chris. They're both very down to earth, genuine people. Are they both tribe members? Are they both Native American? David is a member of the tribe. Chris is a member of the tribe, although Chris grew up in New York Mm -hmm. and is a CPA from back there. And then I got to work with Harry Pickernell, who's the tribal chairman on the government side. Great guy. And then I worked a lot with Harry Chesnan, who's the tribal attorney, and then worked with several other folks on the economic development board. Awesome. That's very cool. Yeah. When will their first product be available? The stills get fired up in November. Half of the stills have been installed, and the other half are on the water right now coming from Italy. And the facility itself, everything else is hooked up. We've got about 80,000 gallons of fermenter tank space all hooked up. We've got three 16,000-gallon mash cookers. The stills that have been installed are ready. There's a twin 3,000-liter pot still system feeding a single column in a very unique fashion. So we get where most distilleries might get two batches in a cycle, we can get three mm. in the same time frame. Okay. Uh, on the water, we also have a separate uh, 2,000 liter gin still made designed just for gin. We've got a series of what we call micro stills for our My Batch program, where we offer tickets to the public and they can come in and run the stills and make their own spirits with us. Oh, how fun. Oh, that is brilliant. Yep. And do you do that at all of your distilleries or just that one? We do it at most of our locations, yeah, in Gig Harbor and Eugene. We'll have to take a trip up there uh, sooner. Mm-hmm. And we have this very unique continuous still system, which is coming from Italy that we designed. That's really three stills in one. And so we can run it as one still. Each of the columns is about 36 feet tall. There's eight columns in the whole system, multiple, multiple plates, hundreds of plates. We can run it as three stills at once in parallel. We can run it as one big still in series and so on. So we can make about 10,000 barrels of whiskey there and another one and a half million proof gallons of vodka, gin, brandies, and other things there. 
Wow. Are they planning to make likewise extended range of spirits? Oh, yes. Okay. Everything that will be made there, plus there'll be some items unique to that location that can only be found from that location. And what have you guys decided what those items are yet? And if so, are you allowed to speak of it? There's going to be some new different whiskeys. There's going to be some really interesting things in partnership with a group out of Arizona that we started to work on. There's going to be uh, some interesting gins. And we're going to be able to make quite a bit of brandy because of the way the continuous still will turn some of the wine we get from the wineries and the brandy in pretty efficient order. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that is terrific. All right. Well, I think, yeah, I think it's time to taste them. <laughs> so let me get my... Sure. I think of the time to taste through what we have here. We have six of your whiskey expressions in front of us. Yes. I think you know what they are. You and Jennifer like to guide us through? Sure. Yeah. There's a great story I'll let Jennifer tell it that's... Because for these whiskeys, we'll start with the Elk Rider, the bourbon, and the rye. And there's a story behind the Elk Rider brand. Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, my family settled in the Quinault Queets region here in Washington State. And as we were going through names of what are we going to name our distillery and then talking about what are product extensions, we very much hold in high regard our heritage and enjoy learning about other heritage that people bring to our life and our experiences. And as we were going through old glass negatives from my parents' attic, we found a series of negatives of my great aunts riding wild elk. That's crazy. Yes. And so we started talking and chatting and saying, oh, here's another elk rider. And it kind of dawned on us that it is a great expression of our heritage. And so we, that's what this line is all about. All of our stills are named after our grandfathers and great grandfathers. Oh, nice. And when you go to any of our heritage distilling company locations, all of the stills are named to celebrate the heritage of that community. And so we've designed Elk Rider to be our staple in all of our heritage distilling company locations to celebrate our heritage and pay homage to everyone else's who comes through the door. Very nice. That's a brilliant origin story. I have a brief sidebar question. Yeah. Can elk be broken? Well, yes. They were actually orphaned and showed up at the orchard where the family settled. They had 17 children. Wow. Yes. And so I come from a very large family, lots of cousins. But yes, they can be. And they were also uh, in the parades in Portland, Oregon. Oh, how fun. The family would take them down there. Yes. So it's a it's a very cool story. That's very cool. Yeah. Some of these photographs, the most impressive thing is you see on all the pictures, it's either kids or women on the elk. We've, we've yet to find a man on one of the elk. And probably the coolest one was the parade Jennifer referenced in Portland, where they had probably a dozen of these things in formation, all of them with women wearing the long, old-fashioned white wool dresses, riding side saddle and the white, wide-brimmed hats riding in succession down the streets of Portland on these elk with these massive racks. It's it's quite a sight. That's cool. That's beautiful. All right, so which should we try first, the rye or the bourbon? Try the bourbon first. The bourbon is uh, high rye bourbon, kind of a rye fan. And are you guys tasting with us today? And we like to have this either neat or with a couple ice cubes. This is just uh, kind of a very approachable sipping bourbon. It's got some caramel and maybe some nutmeg notes if you pick up on those. 
So it's 65% corn and 30% rye and the rest is malted barley. So it's a high rye style. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. I was just going to say it has a very inviting nose. Yeah. And I just tasted it and it definitely has a high rye taste, which I love. Yeah. And 92 proof. We don't chill filter it. We want to keep that that three-dimensional texture in there from the the lipids and the fatty acids. That's beautiful. Yeah, that's quite good. Yeah. And then the next one is the rye. You have butter rye. It's 95% rye. 5% 5% malted barley. Rye is my favorite. You know, if you were to walk into an old time Hollywood Western movie and you kind of uh, went up to the bar between John Wayne and Clint Eastwood and you ordered a whiskey, they were likely to give you a rye whiskey or a wheat whiskey at that time, not bourbon. Yep. Mm. And so this is how I envision a kind of an old fashioned rye because, you know, rye is very hardy as a grain and grows anywhere, low water conditions, bad soil, it self volunteers. It's got a 90-day cycle to get from planting to harvest. Where do you get your rye? Do you grow that up there? We started getting it from Canada when we first opened because we couldn't find any farmers to plant it in Washington. Rye, they've spent about 50 years trying to eradicate rye in Washington State because it (laughs) affects the white wheat fields. That's so rude. And rye is bad for cow stomachs. It degrades the value of the wheat in the railroad cars if they find it in the white wheat. Mm-hmm. But in the last couple of years, we've started to find more and more farmers that are willing to grow it. So we have a couple of farmers down kind of near Walla Walla and uh, in central Washington that are willing to grow you know, small batches for us, mm-hmm. you know, maybe mm-hmm. 100 to 200 tons a year. Awesome. Yeah. Are you getting your corn and barley locally as well or regionally? Uh, the corn? Yeah, the corn comes from a family farm in far eastern Washington in the, near St. John. And this fall, we expect our first batches of corn from Quincy of a very special non-GMO corn. Mm-hmm. And the reason that non-GMO corn is planted was because the family there wanted to start raising Wagyu-style cattle. And in order to get certification, they had to have 100% non-GMO and non herbicide pesticide aha okay so they started growing corn to feed the non-gmo corn stalks to the cow and the corn is really a byproduct for them right (laughs) so we're gonna get our first batches of that non-gmo corn the white wheat we get out of uh, one of my fraternity brothers jennifer's sorority sister's farm in central washington fourth generation wheat farmers nice and the barley we get from family farms over in uh, Colfax, Washington. And we're starting to use unmalted barley now. Oh, really? And having tremendous success in uh, making unmalted whiskey. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. And what was the choice for that? Just to see if well, you could do it? I look at things and I say, well, why are we doing this this way? And if the rule or the response is, well, because that's just tradition. That's how we've always done it. I just think that's a stupid way of making decisions. So. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think about malting barley for beer or malting grains for whiskeys, it had to be done 100, 200, 500, 1,000 years ago because that was the only way to get the enzymatic conversion of the starches Right. where the enzymes do the starch conversion for you. But we have access to all these amazing enzymes now, food-grade enzymes. And so why not take the pure grain from the farm, run some liquid enzyme through it, and produce... 100% attainable fermentable sugar without having any flavor additive from the malting process. Wow. Because you always get some kind of flavor because you're cooking it and roasting it to some degree. Right, right. And it's also cheaper. I can get barley from the farm for 10 cents a pound as opposed to paying 30, 
50, 60 cents or a buck a pound for malted grains. Sure. So we started doing that. No malting floor required. Nothing. So we just get pure grain flavor doing it that way. Wow. Okay. So what should we go to next? Okay. So we did the Elk Rider bourbon and the Elk Rider rye. So now imagine you're at the distillery and you dump the barrel and you say, wow, this barrel still is in fantastic condition. What can we use it for? So we fill the barrels with vodka that we distill from wine grapes. Oh. And we put in the barrels either vanilla beans or orange peel. And we let that sit in the barrels to make an extract, either barrel-aged vanilla extract or barrel-aged orange extract for cooking and for other uses. And that takes a few months. And you get this amazing finish to the extract from the wood aging. But you also create this kind of coating in the wood and the wood absorbs that coating. So when you dump the extract out, now you've got this beautiful coating inside the wood. And so you can put the bourbon or rye back in the barrel and let it sit a little longer and extract some of those orange essence notes or vanilla essence notes. What you have in your packet are the dual barrel aged orange extract barrel bourbon and rye. So it's the same bourbon elk rider or the same rye undergoing this process. And what happens is you, the orange oil molecules will begin to kind of chemically meld with the ethanol in the barrel. And after it sits for several months, it becomes one kind of very deep, more rich product. Yeah, it definitely has orange on the nose for sure. Yeah, but it doesn't taste like you added orange. There's no sugar added. There's no artificial sweetener. It's just that extra little bit of oil. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Now, if you're like Jennifer, who likes an old fashioned, she's an old fashioned girl now. You're halfway there. Yeah. (laughs) Now you use that. When you put a fresh orange peel in and you muddle it, the oil from the orange peel explodes, comes in contact with the ethanol, and it opens up the ethanol molecule and it releases more of the orange essence that's in the ethanol molecule. And you end up with a much deeper, richer, old fashioned that way. Yeah. You don't even need bitters. Wow. Yeah, no, this this is delicious. Yeah. And it's great just on ice by itself. It's great sipping whiskey. Sure. Sure is. And again, no sugar, no, you know, no artificial anything. Uh, the trick is to use orange peels, uh, the dried portion of the outer skin. You don't want any of that pith underlying oh. it because that gets too much tartness. That's awesome. Both of them are excellent. Okay, now I'm trying the, uh, this one's the bourbon. I had the rye first. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's a good reaction to have. (laughs) And the other one we have is the vanilla barrel finish and both the bourbon and the rye. That's available at Total Wine nationwide. Beautiful. I'll have to go check that one. And that's even better for sipping. This orange finished one is great for the old fashions or maybe a Manhattan, Mm -hmm. something like that. But the vanilla finished rye is what I sip on on ice. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's my favorite. Nice. Yeah. Speaking of price, and I know it's going to vary in some instances wildly by state, but what is the, generally speaking, price point on these? Well, if you are going to go to retail in Washington, you're going to find those on the retail shelf probably for 28 to $35. Okay. okay. All right. At Total Wine on the vanilla finish, they range, again, anywhere from 28 to 33 depending on the state. Okay. Okay. Right. So very approachable. Some craft distilleries try to overprice some of their stuff before the market really even knows about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'd prefer to be approachable and have people come back and buy a second or third bottle. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, Jennifer, tell us about this batch number 12. Uh, The blended whiskey. Yeah. Oh, actually, that was my first gateway whiskey to whiskey was the blended whiskey. (laughs) (laughs) 
And then as, you know, my palate evolved, I found myself uh, loving bourbon and occasionally rye. So the blended whiskey, you know, Justin's a master distiller and he made it with a bourbon, rye and wheat whiskey kind of all blended together. And we've got a great distilling team that has a lot of experience on making the right blend and making it consistent. So that's one of my go-to favorite sipping whiskeys after a long day of three children and (laughs) running the company. A little pain number. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I can definitely taste the variations in the grain in this one. It's very good. Yes. But it's actually three whiskeys all made separately and then blended after it's all done. And you're making the wheat as well. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So the wheat is 100% unmalted whiskey. So again, because we use soft, big JD Club, soft white wheat, you get a very creamy texture, Mm -hmm. 100% white wheat. And so here, it just kind of lends itself to that cleanliness and that kind of center action on the tongue. I did visit the website, but I forget, is the wheat, is the 100% wheat available in the market? It's available in small, in what we call our distiller's reserve. So we will release single barrels every now and then in our tasting rooms and among our cast club members. Mm, Okay. All right. And that's usually bottled at 100 proof, anywhere from 100 to 115 proof. The one that I've been so desperately waiting to try... (laughs) because I love everything brown sugar and cinnamon, is the BSB. So Mm. Jennifer, tell us a little bit about BSB and how does that rank ones you want to drink often? (laughs) Yeah, so BSB falls under more of the gateway whiskeys to whiskey. If you have a friend who does not like brown spirits, they will love BSB. It's 60 proof. It's very sweet. So if you have an experienced bourbon or rye palate or scotch palate, it probably won't be what you enjoy to, to sip on. Makes amazing cocktails. Oh, it smells like Christmas. Yeah, it does. And there's you also have BSB 103, which is 103 proof. And if I'm feeling a little festive, <laughs> I'll make have my old fashioned made with BSB 103. Oh, I use a lot of BSB in my baking and my cooking. So I was going to say the fall is coming. So if you've got that ham that you want to glaze, making a BSB reduction is amazing. Yeah. I also use it. Who needs Pepsi to bake a ham? Use BSB. (laughs) Right? Why? Why do that? Pepsi. Yeah. (laughs) Sweet potato casserole. I did make a boozy apple pie during COVID shutdown. Oh my God, this is delicious. And send it home with my mom and dad and... I think they got a buzz off of it because it was very boozy, but bread pudding is awesome. Bread pudding's awesome, yeah. Bananas foster. I'm gonna say I'm glad I ordered the small bottles from you guys because <laughs> I think I would just drink this as dessert because it doesn't even taste <laughs> like I mean it tastes like oh my yeah, god, it tastes I, like Christmas. It reminds me of those super sweet like ice wines. Mm, oh yeah. Yeah. But it's the gateway whiskey. You got a friend who doesn't like browns. They'll love BSB. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's great with slushies. Yeah. Oh yeah. Lemon slushies. Yeah. If you are a whiskey person, I have yet to find a whiskey person, someone who really likes whiskeys, rye, scotches, really amazing bourbons. When they try the 103, the 103 proof version, mm-hmm. it's less sweet. And there's a little more burn. Oh, and is that available in California? It is, yeah. Mm-hmm. A little wine and more? Yeah, it's, a, it's available in most retailers and BevMo. Yeah, the 103 is fantastic, oh, yeah. but it'll mess you up fast. Yeah, it I mean, sneaks it sneaks up. It's, uh, it'll sneak up on you. Yeah. yeah. It'll mess you up. It will, yeah. me- quote. Oh. Well, here's how I say it. BSB will change your life forever. BSB 103 
will fuck your shit up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then I think I need to go pick up a bottle of that. This is a podcast. We can say things like that. (laughs) We already have the disclaimer, 21 and over. (laughs) All right. I have a question about the tasting experience. So Carrie and I are here in Los Angeles sitting in our respective recording studios, also known as our pandemic living rooms. Yep. But you, you go to great trouble to create these tasting experiences for people. Mm-hmm. Jennifer, you are a professional educator. Did all of that background, did that inform the Heritage's approach to creating a learning environment? Yeah, you know, that's where we started off with our My Batch program with the micro stills Justin was referring to. We have micro stills out of uh, Hillbilly Stills out of Kentucky. And we created a program where people can come in and learn from the master distillers on how to distill. We took it one step further and created a cask club where in our distilleries, we have a membership where the walls are lined with 10 liter casks coopered in Spain. They're all privately owned memberships with a plaque on the front of the cask that describes, you know, the owner, their cask club number, and they name it like as if you would name a boat, right? Uh-huh. And so you get as a customer, as a cast club member to pick what spirit you want to age. I've been doing bourbon and then I did a scotch in mine and now I'm actually aging vodka. Um, it's quite good. But so the customer can come in and have a firsthand experience with one of our spirit educators. They come into the tasting room, make an appointment, we pull down the barrel and we barrel taste right with the customer. So you can visit your Daisy Sue, you can visit your Argosy, yes. and two common boat names. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. You can commune with them. Yeah, and it's a lot of fun. And you can add vanilla bean or orange or even meat with one of our distillers to talk about a flavor profile you're trying to achieve, whether it's adding huckleberries or some juniper and a gin that you're aging in a barrel. Once you think it's ready, we'll bottle it and you purchase from your own cask. It is your whiskey, your way. And that's a lot where my education background and curriculum development Mm -hmm. had come in was to develop this and to really make the customer be a part of our heritage family. Because at Heritage, every spirit has a story Mm -hmm. and we feel that our heritage and those who come through the doors also have a story and we love to hear about it and evolve with people and learn more. And that's just one way we can connect with our customers. A side, a little side note, which I think is really kind of ironic and funny at the same time. Just before I was getting ready to send you guys the link, I got an email from Ancestry.com because I used to have the plan and was looking up everything, but I had to turn it off because it's pandemic, no income. So, (laughs) but they sent me a thing saying that my DNA had been updated, not that my DNA has been updated, but the the (laughs) DNA information that they have has updated. Your DNA has mutated. Yeah. (laughs) Updated results. So I went and I was looking at it earlier. And so I was like, how ironic is it that I'm sitting here looking at all of this ancestry stuff as we're going to go talk to the heritage people. I'm very much into genealogy and heritage. And so that was just kind of weird that they sent it to me just before we're about to do this. So yeah. yeah. And you know, we often find as we're sitting around either a campfire or kitchen table or just meeting with friends and sipping on an elk rider whiskey, it's we end up talking about our heritage. Mm-hmm. And we are so blessed and excited to be sharing our story and learning about others. Yeah, it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. And that's what it's all about is learning about other people and where we've all come from and seeing, you know, where we're all going to go. So it's, it's a nice to be a part of the journey. Speaking of heritage, a bit of a sideways sidebar, your 
work first came on my radar when I was, this is a few years ago, and I do a fair bit of judging. A few years ago, I was judging at ADI, American Distilling Institute, and I encountered your bacon-flavored vodkas. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, how did I miss the bacon? <laughs> <laughs> I think you deserve another little care package. <laughs> oh, okay. Then. I won't say no to that. <laughs> right? <laughs> the one thing that we try to have consistently throughout any of our products is when someone kind of throws down a challenge to say, hey, I had this thing over here. Can you make it? I had this over here. Can you make it? We want to make it so it tastes as authentic as possible with no artificial fillers. So when you taste the BSB, the brown sugar bourbon, there's no aspartame. There's no fake sugars. There's no high fructose corn syrup. It's brown sugar and cinnamon and bourbon, and you can taste it, right? I think that's why I like it, because I haven't really liked sweet drinks since I was in my 20s. Yeah. Partially because, I don't know, well, it just, I don't know, they made me sick eventually, but... <laughs> there, there's some other bacon vodkas in the market, but we sampled all that's like, mm-hmm. I don't even think they walked a pig past the bottle of the bacon. <laughs> <laughs> you can get a whiff of the bacon, right? Here's a picture of a pig. <laughs> so we wanted to create this bacon vodka, and it has a very rich maple smoky texture to it as if you had just freshly cooked some fresh slab of bacon. Oh. That's what we wanted to have, but without fat and all the other stuff kind of floating around. It. Mm-hmm. Have you thought about doing a BSB with bacon? A BSBB? Um, <laughs> we, we've talked about lots of things, so uh, we called making bacon, maybe. I don't know. Okay. I, I can envision the Or the BLT, the BLT bourbon. Yeah. There you go. There yeah. you go. Yeah, so. I used to work on this show for Nickelodeon, the craft service lady. My assistant would call me. She's like, it's crack bacon day. I'm like, oh, crap, get some before it. Because I would come in later. Like she'd be there at six when they started and I'd come in at nine so that I could take the later shift. So she'd call me. She's like, they got the crack bacon. And I'm like, oh, my God, grab me some, grab me some. And then like one day I came in earlier and I'm like, oh, is it crack bacon day? And she's like, it is. And it was crack bacon because people just couldn't stop eating it. And it was gone within seconds. But she would have like brown sugar and maple and cinnamon and all these things on it. And then it just tasted like meat candy. It was amazing. Yeah. Mm. There is a dish called an appetizer called meat candy yeah. that you wrap the bacon and the dates and you fry it and then you caramelize it with BSB. Oh, mm-hmm. can you send me that recipe? Yeah, it is meat candy. <laughs> Release the crack bacon. Yeah. <laughs> right. So what we'll do, you can do this with either our bacon vodka or the BSB. If you get fresh bacon raw, chop it up into bacon bits fry it in a pan, the fat will kind of render out. And just before it's finished, you pour all the grease out and you leave the bacon bits in and you either pour into the pan bacon vodka or BSB and you caramelize it down Mm. and it gets that extra deep coating of flavor on it. And then those are the bacon bits that we'll put in baked beans or in salads or on potatoes Mm -hmm. or whatever. Double bacon bacon. Oh, yum, yum. I wasn't hungry. So, yeah. <laughs> so it's we, all that. <laughs> Jennifer, tell us more about the experience. With COVID, are you guys open up to do all these experiences still in a s- smaller capacity yet, or you still have to keep? Well, we were able to actually pivot and participate with first responders to make hand sanitizer. Oh, good. So we did stop production for a while. And the great thing about Justin and his background is that it's all process and we have all the equipment and we made the decision to support our first responders and was able to make a significant amount of hand sanitizer. Did it smell like bacon? (laughs) Right. No, don't drink it. Bacon flavored hand sanitizer? (laughs) Right. No. Our tasting rooms have been open as we kind of evolve and take the punches from 
the governor on what they decide to do for service, we're able to pivot. So we call it hashtag pivot 2020. Nice. And staff has been amazing on being able to maintain cool heads and provide great customer service and still also participate in supporting our frontline folks. I tell people we've done so much pivoting, I feel like a ballerina pulled their hamstring. <laughs> Although we six foot three, it's not a precise. Yeah. <laughs> so do you make cocktails with your stuff there at the tasting room for people or is it just all straight liquor? No, we have cocktails. You know, luckily we have a very talented CEO who's an attorney <laughs> who has worked very hard on getting some of these laws changed nice. so that we are able to actually make cocktails. Wonderful. Yeah. We started with small cocktails with a two ounce per person per day alcohol limit. Now mm-hmm. they're unlimited, you know, within reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have full cocktails. We have rotating uh, menus. We have snacks, which is nice. Cocktails to go now. Mm-hmm. Including bacon? Cocktails. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm stuck on this bacon thing if you can tell. Yeah. <laughs> we have cocktails to go. So you can come in and get pre-made cocktails ready to pour. Luckily, on our waterfront location, we're right across the pier. So people moor up on their boats. Oh, that's fun. And walk over and get some cocktails to go. So we were able to weather the storm a little bit. We had some major layoffs that we had to endure. But for the most part, we're chugging along. Mm. <laughs> That's good. That's good. What are your favorite cocktails? How do you like to cocktail your own spirits? And if it's not your own spirits and you're just out at a restaurant or bar, where do you go? What do you call? Yeah. Well, my favorite is an old fashioned, as Justin had mentioned. When I'm hosting at my house, say a brunch, mm-hmm. I always like to do a big, beautiful container of lemonade and then have a lineup of our flavored vodkas behind it with garnishes. And it's a lemonade bar. So if you want some non-alcoholic, we have that. Or if you want to spike it with mango or pomegranate, or also we have a sweet ghost pepper Mm -hmm. flavored vodka. That's amazing. So I like to do the lemonade bar, frankly. And then any of our whiskeys just on the rocks. Mm -hmm. Delicious as well. We're also big grappa fans. We enjoy grappa. So Justin, what's your go-to cocktail? I like whiskey on the rocks. Um, I generally like rye whiskey. If I'm going to have a cocktail, I might go for an an old-fashioned, but I like a Manhattan. I like cherries, so Mm -hmm. I might ask for two or three. Right, a salad. Yes, yeah. I like the Luxardo. Oh yes, authentic Italian mm-hmm. cherries. Yeah, that's how I get my fruit and vegetables. <laughs> so that was my thing too. I was all about the Luxardo cherries. Still am. Love them. But we just recently interviewed Chris Fredrickson. Fredrickson, yeah. Yes, over at Traverse City Whiskey. You know, in Michigan, are known for their cherries. And so after we got off the phone with him. I went and ordered their cherries and they are fantastic. Yes. <laughs> and they're available on Amazon. So if you want to try something else, those cherries are fantastic. Cool. I'll, We're I'll in. do that. <laughs> yeah. Traverse City out of uh, Michigan. Yeah. Very good. Yes. Yep. Well. Wow. Here we are. This was fun. This has been a great ride. So anyway, thank you guys so much for being on the show today. It was a great time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. World of Wheezy is up next. Stay with us. Hey, do you like whiskey, food, and adventure? I do. Hi, I'm Carrie. I'm Philip. I'm Louise. I'm the chef. Chef Louise Leonard, as in our World of Wheezy segment host here on the podcast, and Whiskey, a Chef's Journey. That chef. That's right. The project that started this very podcast. The series stars our very own chef, Louise Leonard, winner of Emmy-winning The Taste on ABC. And explores and connects the worlds of whiskey and food, city by city, country by country. 
Would you like to see this spirited culinary adventure on a TV near you? Well, you can by helping us finish the pilot episode through our crowdfunding campaign. For more information, including behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and incentives. And to make a pledge, visit our website, whiskeyashef'sjourney.com. Now. Well, I think it's a cheers to that. <laughs> Let's. Cheers. cheers. Louise, nice to have you with us this week. Great to be back. Yes. So this week's guests are the owners of Heritage Distilling, and I love their story. It's fantastic. I love it. It's a, yeah. it's a great story. I made an old-fashioned with the Heritage Jewel Barrel bourbon in orange okay. casks. Nice. Oh, by the way, which I didn't know they had another one, but they also have the same, but with a vanilla instead of an orange. So I'm going to go try that too. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I mean, I swigged this and then I was like feeling in the mood for an old fashioned. And it's something to me, the old fashioned is a very nostalgic drink because I grew up in Wisconsin and everyone in Wisconsin drinks old fashions, though there they are consumed mainly with brandy. Right. Um, but so when I was, I was sipping on this, it really like had me thinking about home and how this, you know, you would normally be drinking an old fashioned if you were at one of the many supper clubs that, that are dotted all around the state of Wisconsin. And most of them haven't been remodeled since like 1954. But these are the places that you go into for a Friday night fish fry. It's like that is a total, total Wisconsin thing every Friday night. And it mostly started because there's a lot of Catholics there and Catholics don't eat uh, meat on Fridays. But Mm. it doesn't matter what you your religion or if you are religious at all or whatever everyone eats friday night fish fry no matter like what god you pray to right which and i just pray to the deep fried fish god at this point in time so um so as i was having my old fashioned i was like oh man i would love a nice crispy piece of fish uh you know in wisconsin we have we would have either walleye or like a lake perch. Um, but you know, just even here, you can get a good hunk of cod and make a nice beer batter and fry that up. When I was growing up, you would also get potato pancakes with applesauce with your Friday night fish fry, which is so wonky. It's like a weird combo that people are like, I don't understand this one bit. I'm like, it's a Wisconsin (laughs) thing. Don't even think about it too hard. But yeah, like I, this bourbon in orange extract casks, it just works so well in an old fashioned. And I mean, I was just all nostalgic. So this pairing has nothing to do with any true notes of, oh, I pulled from this or that. No, it just had me thinking about how that's it. <laughs> awesome. Nice. Yeah. Very nice. Um, yeah. I thought this was a very interesting. I, I don't know if you nosed this before you uh, drank it or started cooking with it, but like I, the nose on it was very different. And I, I felt I could smell the orange like really, really a lot. Yeah. But then when I tasted it, I could taste it a little bit. But I, I mean, the amount of scent coming off of it was far larger than the, than the, than flavor. the taste. Yeah. Yeah. Which is good because I was a little nervous. So I was like, oh, that smells good. But is that going to be good in my whiskey? And sure enough, it was. Well, yeah, I think that's what immediately made me want to make an old fashioned. I was like, yeah. oh, this is, yeah. Sometimes you don't even, they said that a lot of times when they make the old fashioned, they just, they use this only and they don't put any of the extra orange in because uh, there's no need. And it, I, I like it like that too, because sometimes people make old fashions too sweet. So I think 
With this one, it would keep it from being too sweet. Right. I do like a bit of the bitterness off the peel, though. So, yeah. you know, I I actually had a clementine that I used because that's just Ooh. what I had at my house. Um, nice. And it was, and it kind of worked because it, it wasn't the world's sweetest clementine. It actually was like not the best to eat on its own, but it was great in the drink. So. Okay. Yeah. It's nice. All right. There you well, have thanks it. again for your input and your suggestions as always. Um, we will catch up with you next week with our next spirit. That sounds great. We'll talk then. Please visit our website to see our show notes on today's podcast at spiritsofwhiskey.com. That's whiskey with an E. We'll include links and supporting documents from today's Whiskey Chronicles, as well as tasting notes and recommendations from today's World of Wheezy. As always, you can see our upcoming topics and guest roster and links to past shows. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, Salonchava. Spirits of Whiskey is a production of First Real Entertainment and the Center for Culinary Culture, home of the Cocktail Collection, and is available on Anchor, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts can be heard.